0: This is Sentinel Cast number 82. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the Sentinel Fort on a very dark, dark day in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com.
1: On today's show, a discussion about public education. We'll be talking with Emily Gasoy. She's running for the D.C. State Board of Education in Ward 1. She's a veteran educator with uh, seven years of classroom experience. And uh, she's been endorsed by the local DSA chapter here in D.C. and the, Washington's teacher, the Washington Teachers Union, excuse me, among others. And uh, she joins us to discuss public education in, in our city and in the U.S. in general. And uh, that's about the only optimistic thing on the show, to be
0: honest with you. Uh, We're also going to bring out the garbage can later. Uh, We're recording this just minutes after Susan Collins came to the floor under the auspices that she might be a foil to Donald Trump. Turns out uh, she was just as awful as Donald Trump has been on this matter. Uh, She started off her speech by giving credence to Trump's claim that sexual assault survivors are protesting because they're being paid by dark money groups.
1: Dark money, parentheses, parentheses, parentheses. No, I don't want to insinuate she was being anti-Semitic, but the president was when he said George Soros was behind this. She didn't need to do any of this. She could have just
0: said she's going to support Kavanaugh like every other Republican has done. Yeah, Except for Lisa Murkowski, who voted no and says that Kavanaugh's not the right person for this time to be on the Supreme Court. But no, she had to go to the floor. She had to prop up Trump conspiracy theories about dark money and paid protesters. She had to cheerlead Kavanaugh's judicial record and feign ignorance that Kavanaugh won't overturn Roe v. Wade as though Republicans would be so enthusiastic to put him on the bench if that wasn't what he was going to do. I don't know. I found everything about her whole display disgusting. And then, like, I- I'm in no place really to be the one commenting on how horrific her comments were on the Me Too movement and about how, you know, women need to come forward and while at the same time saying that Dr. Ford is essentially mistaken.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, P- uh, peddling the entire theory that Dr. Ford, who told the Senate Judiciary Committee that she was 100% sure that Brett Kavanaugh was the boy who sexually assaulted her. Yeah. She was 100% sure. And Susan Collins, she pays lip service to coming out on one hand, but then says Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, not credible. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was, I mean, that's really the worst part of the speech for me because, you know, Dr. Ford was probably watching that. Yeah. And And
0: it must've been devastating for her.
1: Awful. Awful.
0: There's a bunch of take merchants in DC that have like made their career off building up this drama that, that Susan Collins is in opposition to Donald Trump. The, the most angry Susan Collins got in her speech today was at the leaker, whoever leaked Dr. Ford's letter. I mean, that sounds a lot like Trump behavior right here. Let's distract from all this awful shit on the nominee by going off that the leaker here is the true, the true criminal. There the person al- who
1: should be ashamed of themselves. There was also a very decidedly partisan tone to her speech that almost reminded me of Kavanaugh's testimony itself, which she didn't bring up conveniently. Yeah, she didn't bring that up. Did not which bring is that perhaps up. perhaps just as damning. I mean, look, like,
0: like, I believe, Dr. Ford, to me, it's clear that uh, Kavanaugh fits the profile of someone who would be pretty rapey throughout high school and college. Uh, so this isn't hard for me to believe, but I can see why people might be on the fence or might not want to believe it for partisan reasons. Like it was so obvious his performance, it should be disqualifying though. That was completely obvious. She didn't bring that up at all in her speech. The
1: big uh, tell for me about why Susan Collins did the way she did was A, not only just the complete partisan nature of her speech, which I thought if you're going to wait, if you're going to make the entire country wait and sit on pins and needles and portray yourself as this moderating voice. Yeah. Why? Like, why do this partisan broadside? But anyway, the 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 revealing thing for me was when she was talking about one of the legal doctrines and said, oh, uh, he he, when he finds something unconstitutional, it's it's very narrow. You remember that? And and the case she brought up was was basically when Kavanaugh said the entire structure of the CFPB uh, was unconstitutional. (laughs) Because of of the the power it gave a single director, and uh, that that was immediately reversed by the uh, by the D.C. Circuit. But that was her example of judicial restraint, and that that to me shows that money wants this, money wants Kavanaugh so bad, yeah, that yeah. The, that that Susan Collins just had to psych herself up and 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 do this really awful speech in. I don't know. She she genu- she generally is pro Wall Street and pro banks and and such. And that's I think really why she did what she did today.
0: It's like Murkowski comes out and says that the partisan nature of the court, the whole process, all of this are problems, and that that's why Kavanaugh can't be confirmed right now. Collins comes out and claims that and, and does. Uh, complain about the partisan nature of the Supreme Court, but actually says that the guy who testified before the Senate that he believes that the Clintons are out to get him and that what goes around comes around, she claims that that guy is going to somehow lessen the partisan nature of the court? I mean, politicians give speeches that gaslight us all the time, especially in the last month around in, in the uh, Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee basically every performance they've given. But this ranks in like top five all time speeches to gaslight the country.
1: Speaking of which, and mentioning gaslighting and the Senate Judiciary Committee, <laughs> how about Collins' praise of Grassley? during her speech is having conducted a fair process.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Grassley literally subjected the, uh, the, the sexual assault survivor to cross examination by a prosecutor. And then once that prosecutor just dipped their toe into cross examining Kavanaugh and he clearly showed that he was willing to lie, he pulled it. He pulled the prosecutor from, from any further questioning, but yeah, it was a completely fair process.
1: The, the, Truly the darkest thing, I think, about all this is that, as we know, as as certainly as law enforcement knows, metadata does not lie. Metadata does not lie. And the fact that Kavanaugh had listed on a calendar the exact description of an event that Dr. Ford had mentioned, like, how does that alone... Uh, not move you, as Colin said, from less likely to more likely. Yeah. That is, that is, it, it's chilling. It's chilling. It's absolutely disgusting.
0: We could, we could talk about this more. I mean, we're still clearly trying to process this. And as we, I've said on the show, this is an extremely dark time, like darker than most times I can remember in our politics, even Trump's election, even like, the 2016 whole shit with Trump calling for Muslim bans and all this stuff like I don't know. like I I don't think I can fully articulate why
1: this is that much darker, but it just seems really bad because we've just witnessed a cover up of a sexual assault play out on live TV
0: and with, over with the with such brazen
1: of disregard,
0: yeah, and disrespect for for people who have really gone and put like their life and their emotional well-being on the line. And yeah, this is dark stuff. All right.
1: Uh, let's get to the interview. Chances are your local public education system is being circled by hedge fund types. People who think schools should operate more like businesses in every way possible. That's been the case here in D.C. for years. The city was ground zero last decade for corporate education reform. Joining us for this week's interview is someone trying to fight back. Emily Gasoya is running for the D.C. State Board of Education in Ward 1. She's been an educator for 20 years, and she's endorsed by our local DSA chapter in D.C. and the Washington Teachers Union, among others. So, Emily, first things first. You're running for the State Board of Education here in D.C. Uh, First of all, kind of a weird name because we're not a state, as everyone knows. Uh, We don't have two senators. We don't have a vote in the uh, House of Representatives. But apart from the weird name uh, or putting the weird name aside, what does the board actually do?
2: Well that's an excellent excellent question to start with, um, because a lot of people don't know very much about the State Board of Education in d c and um, it has three main roles so the first one is it's the you know the the only democratically governed uh, i mean democratically elected body related to education in d c and so it's it's really the main conduit for constituent voice um, in decision-making. And so advocating for our, you know, stakeholders, our teachers, our parents and students is really one of the main roles that we should play. Um, and then secondly, um, an advisory role to the state superintendent. So bringing, you know, important research to decision-making. And then finally, really the the main power that the board has at this point is to vote on plans that the state superintendent puts forward. So, for instance, on how we evaluate our schools um, and graduation requirements, things like that. So, pretty important issues yeah. that really impact uh, what, you know, how schools are run, how they're, you know, evaluated, and, and that drives what actually happens in our schools.
1: And what made you want to run for this position? You have uh you have experience in education uh, as we noted in our intro. The uh w- w- what is it that uh that made you decide that this was the next step for you, that this was something you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, well, so one of the things that I know so I'm a parent. Um I have a daughter. Uh she started first grade. And um, I'm i an advocate for public education in our city and nationally, um, and so you know I I go to open for, or the public forums that OSE and the State Board of Education hold, um, and what I've started to notice is a pattern, which is that you know we're invited out to give our input as the you know the people who sort of know the most about our schools. But we often feel ignored, um, and that was really apparent to me around, you know, this, this last round of, of open forums where the, the state superintendent was putting forward a plan to evaluate our schools, and the State Board of Education gathered input from the public, put forward great recommendations based on that input. And basically, the state superintendent ignored it. And at that point, that's the point at which the state board, you know, has the power to say, well, you really can't ignore constituent voice. We're going to vote no on this, and you need to, you know, do something to make changes. And that didn't happen. And what it made me realize is that we really don't have the representation we need on the state board right now. Um, And part of that is the fact that of the nine members, there are only two who actually have kids in the system and one of them is our current member who's stepping down. She's also one of two who has classroom experience. So what I realized is I have, you know, the the experience and expertise that's really missing on the board to, to be able to step up and represent, like I said, the people who know our schools the best. You know, we're the ones who, as teachers, we you know, will will be able to you know, we have to live with the plans that get put forward, right? So so I think it's just really important that there are people who understand how the decisions and the policies that get passed down actually play out on the ground.
0: Emily, I've lived in the city for uh, about 10 years. I, I didn't go to School or anything here. I moved here after college. Uh, I don't really have any kids. I don't have any kids. Uh, You don't really, not really. (laughs)
1: That that
0: have gone through the the school system here. So um, I'm I'm not too familiar with the DC school system. I I, I do have knowledge of the sort of uh, donor class education reformers that came around uh, with Michelle Rhee a few years ago. What is the the current state of DC schools when it comes to that struggle between, you know, offering it as a traditional public utility versus uh corporate education reform?
2: Right. Well, DC <clears throat> excuse me, DC is in some way so so I should mention that there used to be a DC school board. And now it's the State Board of Education. And what that change uh, signifies is that, you know, in 2007, we went from having a school board that was, you know, democratically elected that was sort of the body that made most decisions to mayoral control of our school system. And the mayor now appoints, um, you know, a deputy mayor, a chancellor, a superintendent. And the school board is supposed to play, and I didn't mention this, an oversight role because it's not um, appointed by the mayor. And so, you know, we've, in 2007, that shift happened where we became um, sort of a much more top-down school system. Um, it was for a reason. I mean, I'm not saying that things were rosy before that, um, but there were improvements that were promised, there, you know, was supposed to be a movement towards greater equity and, and, you know, more um, sort of making a much more functional school system. And we just, you know, there have been some improvements, but in terms of equity, we just really haven't seen the promise, the promised improvements. So to answer your question about sort of that balance between, you know, public education as a, as a common good and sort of the invasion of, corporate um, corporate interests in our school system. We have uh, a school system that, you know, we're, one of the main levers for equity has been school choice. And we have a lottery system in place where, quite honestly, as a parent who's navigated it and spoken to many, many parents, it really feels much more like chance than choice. And too many parents say that they've lost the lottery, which is quite astounding, right? To, to say that I've lost the lottery when it comes to my child's education. Um, it's, it's really unacceptable. And what it really is is a distraction from the real issue, which is that we need great neighborhood schools across our city. Um, and so that's one of my main priorities is focusing on making sure that we have the supports we need so that every family, every student feels like they have a great by right school in their neighborhood that they can choose. <laughs> that's real choice. Um, and I think, you know, the the that idea that choice will bring greater equity is really sort of a, a free market value or three market um, ethos that has, you know, filtered into our, our ed reform uh, movement so that, I don't know, I mean, there is a lot of good, there are a lot of good things that are happening in DC. Um, but that is definitely sort of a um, something that has been problematic.
1: So, what are some of the uh good things that you 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 describe that you wouldn't touch and uh how how do you think you would use your seat on the board to uh to to push the superintendent in in the way to create these neighborhood schools uh that you describe
2: yeah so One of the things I'm already doing, I've been on the, it started out as a um, advocacy group for community schools. And now um, we've actually gotten funding from the city council and a grant um, from a national community schools organization. But um, it's now the DC, DCPS community schools planning committee. And what that does is it um, brings targeted wraparound services to schools and uh, it helps to staff the school, so it brings in partnerships, so that the school can stay open later, uh, open up earlier, uh, and just sort of be a hub in the community. Which under school choice is something we lose, right? We lose schools as sort of the center of a community, and so that's one thing that I think is is really central. It's worked very well in other cities, and in DC we've actually had an initiative in place for. About six years, but it's been weak, and so that's something that you know I already have my feet on the ground with, but that I want to advocate for you know strengthen it even further in terms of right now the funding is year by year, and we need that to be sort of just part of our our
1: system if, if um, i if I w- can jump in that sounds like an interesting idea because i I mean I have no Experience in education, but having been a DC resident uh, for years, public education has, has always been uh, a hot topic, so to speak, among DC residents. And the idea among corporate ed reformers that the status quo isn't working. Um, and and we can't change anything outside our schools, so we got to change stuff within our schools. That obfuscates the facts that many of our public schools in the United States are some of the best in the world. They just happen to be in communities that ha- that are rich that have these resources right. that can take care of the kids. So I, I just wanted to mention that in the context of, of of the wraparound services. That that I mean that sounds like something. Um, that resonated with me as as something of a good idea.
2: Right. And that's such an important point, Sam, actually, you know, I think what I was trying to articulate before was that we've just been swimming in this neoliberal water for so long that I do, I I've met with so many people from even from central office, from DCPS who are passionate, smart people. And what frustrates me is that somehow the work that they're doing they are they're sincerely working towards having a, a you know great public school system that's more equitable and somehow it doesn't all come together but i think in part it's because of this idea that our schools are the problem and they are the solution and it's a way of ignoring sort of the the structural issues that you know, we actually have a society that's incredibly inequitable and that we have this incredible legacy of racism, uh, that's still very much uh, at play today. And that, you know, ignoring those out of school factors is really to our detriment, you know, if we really do want to improve our schools. So I, I agree with you hundred percent and that's why, you know, Community schools have been working so well in other cities is because it's a way of actually, you know, putting schools at the center, but without making them sort of the scapegoat of like, well, if these kids could just do better in school, then they'd have, you know, then the playing field would somehow be leveled.
1: The, the schools um, so just need bootstraps. Yeah. They need more bootstraps so these kids <laughs> pull can pull themselves, themselves up. up with, yeah, right. exactly. There, there, there's a shortage <laughs> of bootstraps in DC schools right now, uh, particularly east of the river, uh, according, yes, according to certain people. That's right. <laughs> so I want, I, right. wanted, I wanted to. I did you have more to say? I don't want to cut you off there. If you had more to say on well, on I the will subject just matter.
2: say that there's there's been momentum since I started running, um, in city council and, um, with some members of the board to try to create more, um, oversight and transparency and even to have, you know, start moving away from absolute mayoral control because, you know, as I started to, or I indicated before, that's part of the the problem I think in DC is that. In other states, there's actually like a state apparatus where the mayor, even if there is mayoral control, the mayor doesn't have absolute control, right? Um, here, that's not the case. And so, you know, while there have been some improvements, like I mentioned, overall, that's, you know, we need more democracy, not less, right? And we need to start moving away from, from this very top-down sort of field uh, system. And so one proposal that, uh, Ward 3 council member Mary Che has put forward is to make ASI, which is the state superintendent, independent of the mayor. And that's something that I strongly advocate. I think it would <laughs> go a long way to to improving our system because right now what we have is a system that's really focused on looking good all the time. And when you do that, it, it really makes it impossible to actually look at what's not lo- working well so that you can have authentic improvement um and so that's that's really important
1: <laughs> so i wanted to not to get too negative here but let's talk about your opponent <laughs> he okay. is he is supported by a group called democrat well we don't have to personalize this i w- i want to talk more about this group that's backing him it's called democrats mm-hmm. for education reform uh it sounds a little ominous and i just wanted to ask you uh, what your take on them is.
2: Right. So I knew about Democrats for education reform before I started running <laughs> because um, I, you know, as an educator and somebody who's very uh, a, a passionate advocate for public education, uh, I was aware of them as sort of a, an organization that has undermined the first of all undermines democratic elections across the country they are being sued by the democratic party in colorado and in california among others for using the you know the name democrats <laughs> because what they do i know
1: small what they d. do is
2: they you know yeah they um they come into districts large and small and they fund candidates who sometimes are local but often are not, um, and they bring in lots of money from outside um, to push a a pretty narrow agenda, which basically is that charter schools and vouchers are the panacea for fixing everything that ails our public schools. Um, High-stakes accountability based on test scores is the best way to leverage improvements um, and, and, you know, that means in terms of evaluating schools and teachers, which is, you know, research has completely de- debunked. So um, there's no reason to keep pushing this. And then, you know, they cut out teachers unions and, you know, it's done in, in the name of, you know, if you look at their website, they consider themselves progressive which also makes me angry because I happen to be a progressive educator, which has meaning, you know? So they've kind of co-opted this idea of what it means to be progressive. And again, it's just this very neoliberal um, way of improving our schools, which is basically to privilege the already privileged um, because they are invested in a lot of the, you know, even in, uh, Anyway, we know that there are a lot of charter schools that are for profit, but even the ones that are nonprofit, you know, there's a lot of profit to be made around them. And so d was started by hedge fund managers uh, from New York city. Mm. And um, that's a lot of the, the kinds of folks who bankroll these elections basically. Okay. So what's, what's worth mentioning in DC is that four years ago um for played a role but there was only one staff member apparently and now there are five and they are really present in you know several words and you know this is a small election that nobody really usually pays attention to so we have to ask ourselves why are they pouring half a million dollars which is what they're doing into these races in dc
1: and uh, that's more than the restaurants are spending on 77. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I, know, I, just, right? I just had to say that. And your opponent is is pretty
0: representative of their agenda.
2: Well, yeah, he's definitely, because usually they just back a candidate, but he actually was on the board of Defer before he started mm-hmm. ra- running. <laughs> um, so he, he's actually part of Defer. Um, he is a banker uh, at Capital One, and his... His education experiences being on the board, he's the head of the board of a charter school called Achievement Prep, and I urge your listeners to just do a Google search on the school and you'll find plenty of interesting information.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they will do that uh, right now. <laughs> uh, as someone who's been in education policy for decades as kids in the education system, I'm curious what your what your observations are over the last two years, almost two years, with Betsy DeVos heading the Education Department. It, what effect that's had uh, down the line to schools across the country?
2: Ah, oh, Betsy DeVos. Um, so I should just mention that
1: <laughs>
2: you know my opponent in some ways brings Betsy DeVos to mind because, like. Betsy DeVos. He is somebody who has a very limited experience in, in education, you know, like his experience is limited to being on a board, and somehow that qualifies you. And I think, unfortunately, that is part of, you know, the impact. I mean, it was happening before, but just this idea that, you know, anybody can do this. <laughs> um, Especially you if you're rich. Any relevant, yeah, you don't need any relevant experience. Somehow, being rich is an asset, like somehow you, because you were able to, you know, in Betsy DeVos's case, she didn't even make herself rich, but somehow that makes you somebody who has done well in your life. And that will translate uh in your decision-making, which is ironic because Betsy DeVos, you know, her uh state of Michigan is like a, you know, ground zero for what is wrong with education, it's, I mean, with education reform in that, you know, there's no regulations around who can open up charter schools. Anyone can open up a charter school. Um, there's no regulations around uh, vouchers and um, the, the public school system there is really suffering. Students and families have to travel, you know, miles and miles to find a, a school that they can attend. Um, there are organizations, for-profit organizations, opening up charter schools that are, you know, making money off of taxpayers um, without having a single credentialed teacher or principal in, in the building. So the fact that that's kind of what uh, Betsy DeVos is trying to scale up, you know, that her main, she really isn't um, advocating for much else besides school choice, again, as a way of addressing every problem that schools have and and sort of looking at schools as, again, as I said, the problem and the solution. And so it's a very simplistic and self-serving form of ed ed reform. Hmm. Um, So, so I think you know it's interesting because organizations like Defer were kind of fluctuating around. You know, Bessie DeVos is pushing a lot of the same. The agenda aligns with theirs, more or less. But they knew that they didn't want to be aligned with with her because she's unpopular with Democrats. But but there was a moment where they you know, where they were. So that's kind of, they were showing their true colors at that moment. And there are members, founding members of Defer who were, for instance, the head of the board on Betsy DeVos's, um, uh, her main advocacy organization in Michigan, or, you know, who consulted for Bobby Jindal in Louisiana, you know, and we know that New Orleans is a hundred percent charter schools at this point. Hmm. So
0: Emily, uh, lastly, I, I noticed your campaign has been endorsed by Democratic Socialists of America here in D.C. Um, how did that go down and how, how do you see how, how your campaign aligns with the values of Democratic Socialism?
2: Well, I think that, you know, first of all, one of the, the reasons why I, I feel so strongly about public education is because I think our public sector in general is is the foundation of our democracy uh, and that public schools like our public other public institutions are really under attack um, and they're under attack by this neoliberal agenda that is you know sort of challenging the idea that you um, that it's a good way for it to to think about the common good as opposed to, you know, uh, individual benefit. Uh, and so I think I, I wrote a book recently called these schools belong to you and me, why we can't afford to abandon our public Schools." And I think the title says a lot about the alignment of the values there, you know, that, um, I, I, you know, I just think that we need to wake people up, you know, that there's been we've been swimming in this water for for too long and too many people who would otherwise be appalled by what's happening have become inured, you know, and I think the Bernie Sanders movement sort of was a wake up call, but um, I think people are getting bogged down now (laughs) Quite frankly, you know, the news has become so depressing.
1: You're telling us um,
2: that. Yeah. So so I think, you know, what I found in in the Democratic Socialist movement is just that, you know, there are people out there who are who are awake and who are um, shaking things up. And I'm hoping that our campaign will be uh, doing that as well.
1: Emily Gasoy is running for the State Board of Education in a non-state, in a district, Washington, D.C. <laughs> She's running in Ward 1, if you are living in that ward. You will have Emily on the ballot in November. Same day as the midterms yeah. at the, all across the country, right? I don't want to get the, yeah, uh, the, no, no, no. The, the election day wrong. <laughs> Mustn't get the election day wrong. <laughs> Have an FEC campaign against us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> November we, 6th.
2: We should also, I think um, early voting starts November 22nd. Is that correct?
0: Sounds right. Or Sounds right, to us. We <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we do encourage people to, to get out for early voting.
0: Cool. Well, Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show and good luck with the campaign.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Sentinel Cast number 82. Thanks again to you, Emily for joining us this week. All right, we've got a roster of garbage candidates here. We're going to get to, but uh, I'm still pretty shaken up about the Susan Collins thing. Let's see. Let's see how this goes. Let's see how this plays out. <laughs>
1: Interns, which we'll say for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> bring in the garbage can. All right. There you, go. Bring, there you in, go. bring it in, bring it you in, bring it in. You you
0: don't have to be too careful with it. I don't really care about uh, the safety of the Give people inside of the garbage can at this point. Yep, just go ahead. Bring it in
1: the studio. In a, in a few years, the garbage right can will be underwater Good. because of Judge Kavanaugh's majority ruling in Exxon versus <laughs> baby dogs, puppies, Exxon v. puppies.
0: Garbage uh, candidate number one, the FBI. Wait, how is the FBI not permanently enshrined in the garbage can? This must be an oversight on our part, one that maybe can be corrected today. You know, it's funny, when it comes to setting up a troubled teenage Muslim to commit an act of terror, the Bureau will commit endless resources to the effort. But when it comes to investigating a frat boy judge for sexual assault, they put in less effort than me on my fourth grade Johnny Tremaine book report. Maybe they were constrained by Senate Republicans or the White House, I doubt it. The FBI is fundamentally a right-wing institution. They didn't even bother to make it look like they conducted a thorough probe. They wrapped it up a few days early, and they just ignored dozens of witnesses. I at least read the last chapter of Johnny Tremain. So for that, and all the other horrible shit the FBI has done... If, I mean, I guess if we're including all the other horrible shit the FBI has done, uh, there would be no question that it would go to the garbage <laughs> can. So we'll just isolate it at that. they
1: sham investigation. Uh, the FBI is nominated this week. Garbage candidate number two, Joe Manchin. The senator from West Virginia voted yes to advance Judge Kavanaugh to final confirmation, which uh, feels like now that it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know how he's <laughs> going to vote this morning. finally. but Yeah. We don't know. How he will finally vote. I guess it doesn't really matter as much with uh, Susan Collins' performance earlier today. But why is there any doubt in Manchin's mind at this late in the game? I mean, Kavanaugh has almost certainly committed sexual assault. For one, he perjured himself. He had a vicious, angry, conspiratorial tantrum on live TV. That should be enough for Manchin. Also, look at the senator's own campaign this election cycle. He's running against a state attorney general who joined a lawsuit to stop Obamacare regulations. And one, of Manchin, and one of Manchin's own ads shows him shooting that lawsuit with a gun. How the fuck does Joe Manchin think Brett Kavanaugh of Chevy Chase Maryland will use his spot on the Supreme Court to affect the healthcare industry? Does he really think the Federalist Society's golden boy will help him shoot a tax on health care regulation with a fucking gun? You might not pass a final confirmation vote, but Joe Manchin is def- definitely nominated this week for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number three, Jeff Flake. Back to
0: back weeks, he's nominated, and for good reason. You know, I used to think John McCain was the master of legislating like a fucking ghoul, but manipulating the press into thinking he's some noble statesman. But then McCain died, and Jeff Flake is better at the game than McCain ever was. Flake was always a yes on Kavanaugh because he's a partisan hack. He is just like Donald Trump. We're here today. All of this is happening. The sham FBI probe, the cloture vote, what looks like confirmation of Kavanaugh, pretty much guaranteed at this point. We're all here because of Jeff Flake. He came up with the scheme to have a bullshit FBI investigation that could give him and other moderate senators cover. And it did. And with a straight face, Flake can call the FBI probe thorough. Collins can call it thorough. What a fraud. What a total fucking fraud. I really don't want to hear another fucking thing about this guy
1: again. Let's put him in the garbage can. (laughs) Good case there. Uh, Garbage candidate number four, Fred Trump. Everyone knows the president's dad was a racist slumlord fuck. Now, thanks to a New York Times investigation, everyone also knows the lengths he went to to ensure that his shitty son could inherit vast sums of money with a suspiciously small tax bill. According to the Times, Fred Trump set up a number of financial vehicles that paid out the equivalent of $413 million to Donald, despite claims by the son that his father only gave him a small million dollar loan. Fred Trump was a fucking disgusting leech, landlord, slumlord, fucking scum, and he set up his spoiled brat son to be the same, and look where we are today. Not to mention, Fred Trump's face looks like someone dumped pubes on a wet baguette. Fred Trump and his disgusting pretzel skull, <laughs> nominated for the garbage can. Garbage can number five: the New York Yankees. Okay,
0: confession: I'm rooting for the Yankees to beat the Red Sox. Yes, the Yankees are bad, the evil empire. But I just fucking hate the Red Sox. Intern Nate is a Red Sox fan, and fuck that guy, right? But the Yankees are nominated for very good reason. They crossed a picket line. Service workers at the Boston Rich Carlton are striking, demanding better working conditions and job security. And a group of Yankees players were caught on video walking right past them and into the hotel with their baggage. The team was even ripped by their organized labor back home. The New York AFL-CIO president released a statement saying, quote, as a lifelong Yankees fan and proud New Yorker, I am disgusted the management of a team representing the strongest union town in America would choose a hotel where workers are on strike. I mean, baseball players are unionized themselves. They should know better. The Major League Baseball Players Union did release a statement in solidarity with the workers saying, quote, they deserve to be heard and deserve our support. But the Yankees, they could still get the can. Crossing a picket line is pretty egregious and will get you nominated every time.
1: Finally, garbage candidate number six, the D.C. City Council. As we noted on the show earlier this week, the City Council voted 8-5 to 5 to repeal Initiative 77, the ballot initiative to end exemptions to minimum wage laws for certain industries in D.C., cough, cough, the restaurant industry... This would uh, have, and uh, this decision, this decision to reverse Initiative 77, will keep a lot of people in D.C. in poverty, according to according to studies on the so-called tip minimum wage system. And this is happening, by the way, in spite of the fact that there are only Democrats, only Democrats on the council. Seriously, they tried to hold open a seat for a minority party. Like uh, uh to to just like try to get a Republican on the D.C. City Council. As I said and, earlier, not and, much optimistic shit <laughs> in today's show. And guess what? There's still no Republicans on the City Council, so it's basically all Democrats and liberals. And uh, the Council voted eight to five to repeal Initiative 77. Now, as we have also noted on the show, the aggressively anti-77 restaurant industry has showered money on politicians who buy their bullshit. The D.C. City Council did, so it is nominated this week for the can. And the D.C. City
0: Council won the votes this week. I'm just going to go out there <laughs> and, and spoil it for everyone. Uh, they won the votes, but this is a local matter that Sam and
1: I will handle ourselves. Yeah. Uh, there are much more pressing things. Uh, I just... Should, we don't even need to go through the rundown, should we do it? I think everyone knows what's coming at this point. Should we do it? do, you, do they Okay, yeah let's do it. Let's do it. Susan, Susan Collins, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, oh, uh, there, there goes all your. There goes. All your uh, your your thank you notes from the Federalist Society are going in there too. And bank lobbyists, you fucking scum.:
0: Susan Collins, never. Never, never letting her out of the garbage can. She's staying in there for good. That is Sentinel Cast number 82. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Congressional Dish podcast hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Another sponsor, levelnews.org. The newscast returns next week, Monday through Thursday, 4.20 p.m. Sentinel cast number 83. Next week, listen in. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.